Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello, everyone. My name is Ashkan Salehi, and I am a second-year medical student at McGill. I am joined today by my colleague Zoe, Zoe O'Neill, another second-year medical student at McGill, and Dr. Juliana Mahoud, who is a family physician working at St. Mary's Hospital in Montreal, Quebec. We'll be take, uh, talking about resiliency, mindfulness, and how to manage success and failure. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Mahoud. Thanks for having me. Dr. Juliana Mahoud is a Montreal-based McGill University-affiliated family physician who originally completed her medical education at McGill. She is extensively engaged in the mentorship and guidance of medical students at McGill University, particularly through her role as an Auditor Fellow, where she mentors five medical students throughout the students' four years of training. So Dr. Mahoud, thank you so much for coming. We wanted to ask you uh, an, an interesting question, and that is, what originally attracted you to pursue medicine? What were the educational and personal experiences that led you to where you are today? So, hi, thanks for having me again. That's a good question. It's a, it's a big question too. It's, uh, it's not too far away from me, so I can, I can still remember. I did an undergrad in something very different than, than science or medicine. I did an undergrad in music particularly um, or specifically in vocal performance. So I really wasn't in the world of science at all, but I had a, have, I have a parent who's a physician as well. So <clears throat> I was sort of connected to medicine in that way, as I'm sure a lot of medical students still are. So, so after I completed my undergrad degree in music, I had sort of figured out I wasn't going to pursue that, at least for the time being. And I, I really had to think very long and hard about what I was going to do. I was, uh, I was a little lost. I had a job. I worked in a bookstore for a few years. I did a, a bit of traveling. And so during that time, I got to think about what I wanted to do and what I might be good at. So it was very much a, a process for me to, to think about not really going into medicine, but just to think about going to do my prerequisites that would be required of me to even attempts to get into medicine. So it was a very like long and step-by-step -step process. And at the time, I really didn't know what medical school would be like. I, I don't think anyone really knows until they get there. But all I knew about medicine was really what I knew about what my dad did. And I knew it was, I knew it was something important. And I knew it was something that was very valued in society. And I thought, well, I'd like to do something important and I'd like to do something valued. It doesn't have to be medicine, but medicine involves people and I'd really like to work with people. So it wasn't the only profession in the mix. I thought about other things. So I thought about becoming a teacher. I thought I might be good at that. I thought about nursing. I thought about social work. I was somewhat familiar with it because of my dad and because of the status it had, you know, as being something very helpful, something important, something where you could you know, exert like a positive force in the universe. So that maybe that was very naive. I don't know, <laughs> but. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you. And how did you decide to go into family medicine? Can you recall a particular moment or experience that encouraged you to go into this field? I knew very early on in medicine that I was going to end up in family medicine, most likely. There, there was a moment in my first year where I was like, oh, there's all these specialties. What am I, what am I going to end up doing? But um, that didn't last very long. I 
I think it's mostly like personality. I figured that I, I would be well suited to, I think, outpatient medicine for the most part. And I knew I didn't want to do, I knew I didn't want to do surgery. No, I had already decided I'd wanted to go into family med, even by the time I did my family med rotations, both urban and rural. So it was more like, uh, it was more like confirming for me <laughs> that it was the right place, you know? And I suppose when I, when I think back to experiences I had in medical school, you sort of learn the art of speaking to people and listening to people and, you know, caring about their feelings. It just seemed like I had found my people, I guess, by the time I got there. And, and mostly I did outpatient medicine. So, you know, you're not always, you're not always constantly uh, stressed by emergencies. That just seemed to be, for the most part, my style of medicine. And I, and I found people like really inspiring and they loved what they did. And just seemed like I was going to excel at it. <laughs> the, ver- the verdict, the jury's still out. <laughs> but uh, when what, what inspired you to take on the mentorship role that you have for the medical students? So that's always been something that has interested me, just being around learners, whether they be medical students or residents. Like now I work in a, an academic center, which is awesome. So there's lots of different reasons. I mean, smaller things like it provides a lot of nice variety for your practice. Like I'm not always stuck in an office doing the same thing day in, day out. Um, I also do some obstetrics with family medicine. So I have that variety as well, but you know, having a medical student come in and shadow you, discuss with you, it's more social medicine, especially family medicine, I think is, it can be a really solitary kind of work and you sort of have to seek out opportunities to debrief with people and talk about your day and talk about patients but it's it it is a bit lonely because just you right it's you you have the sole responsibility for all your patients and it's like this for all doctors and all specialties but but the sort of day-to-day of of family of community-based family medicine I think can be lonely sometimes and yeah getting to talk to medical students and teach them and maybe help them is is a lot of fun it sort of lightens the load in a very serious environment which I think is kind of important in the in the context where you get to or I get to help people or help the medical students or guide them advise them if they have questions and things like that or you know in our OSTA group for example it's it's a place I find where medical students get to open up a lot and and I do feel like I'm I do feel like I'm helping them in some ways sometimes if you're if when I'm in the position where I'm helping other people it's a nice opportunity for me to share my positive experiences, my negative experiences, whether it be with my Oslo students, my LFME students, other med students rotating through residents as well. And I think the hope that I have is that I can provide them with a bit of support, but also understanding and empathy, like with whatever they might be going through. And the fact that I get to do that is not just helping them, but it helps me a lot. Like it's incredibly therapeutic to get to talk about your successes, failures, your hardships, things that came with more ease to other people. I guess that's part of being resilient too, is being able to sort of, you know, reach out to your social supports. And for me, even though I'm acting in a professional capacity as, as a staff with the medical students and residents, it, it does help me. It does help me in my day to day. It does help me feel a little less helpless when things don't go that well especially when I see the students over time and I see how they change, how they've gone through certain things, you know, maybe they didn't succeed at getting through something and they need help with that. It's very rewarding and it's very empowering. 
and for me. And I hope it's I hope it's that way for students too. Oh, absolutely. And as a participant in the Oslo Group, I can definitely say that it really is a therapeutic space to share and yeah. to just be very real with your colleagues and with with a staff member as well. Mm-hmm. And I think in in relation to that, in some ways, as medical students, there is a bit of an allergic reaction when it comes to failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's something that can be distinctly uncomfortable and almost the process of getting into medical school can can contribute to that because it does select for a certain kind of person who's, uh, you know, very kind of achievement oriented, I would say. But one of the things that we really want to do is to normalize failure a little bit and talk about it. And I think by doing that in our also groups, that's really useful. But even doing it on a on a on a podcast like this is useful too because we can look at the people that we most admire, which are often our Oslo fellows actually, and say, oh, they've failed once before and that it, that's okay and look at where they are so one of the things that we really wanted to ask you about was what what has been an important moment of failure for you and what do you feel like it taught you only one <laughs> there have been more than one you're totally right by the way Zoe we're we're really afraid of failure but more than only being afraid of it i think we don't talk about it And it's not just medical students, right? Staff don't always talk about it. The administration doesn't always talk about it. It's a a tricky subject. You know, you're you're supposed to succeed at being a physician and you're supposed to do things right all the time. (laughs) That's That's the ideal. But, you know, we're human and that doesn't always happen. So if I'm going to talk about a moment of failure for me and what it taught me, I'll talk about my very first medical school exam. So I failed my first exam of medical school, you know, shock, shock and awe, I think for everyone when you start and to top it all off, I, I failed. So, you know, really it cast a, a shadow on the rest of my year. I kind of felt like I had a dark cloud following me all the time. I wasn't a very happy camper and uh, I still get pangs of failure and feelings of being inadequate when I think about that time, because it was definitely a big trial for me. And, you know, it heavily stigmatized, I think, in school as well. Maybe not only in med school, I'm sure everywhere. I mean, the nice thing in med school is that they do try to get you through, right? Like there's been so much invested in you to get you in there that, you know, it's, it's hard to just be kicked out. And they do give you chances to redeem yourself. So that was definitely a positive thing. But I had the whole year to look forward to that because the retakes were in the summer. So it was a little bit brutal to have to go through the year that way. You know, I, I did feel like I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do med school. I was like, I, I really don't think this is for me. And I asked the question a lot, like, is it for me? You know, is this really where I belong? If I failed the first thing I did when I got there, you know, it was an exam filled with like biochemistry and all the stuff that I'd basically never done before. No, I told a close friend, I told my family, um, but I didn't tell anyone else. I really was very afraid of what their reaction might be. You know, I was afraid of being judged, but I was also just afraid that, you know, friends would just feel extra anxious for me and that that would make me feel even more anxious. (laughs) So I just didn't want to have to face that that kind of reaction. Um, And in the end, I got through that year and... I, when I got, so this is, I guess this is what I learned about myself. So when I got to the time where I had to study for it, there was about, I think, three weeks between the end of med one and, and, um, and the exam time. 
And I finally had time to sit down and go through the material over and over again, like as many times as I needed to, and listen to those recorded lectures and some of some of them over and over because I didn't understand much. <laughs> you know, finally I I did assimilate the information and it was it was actually enjoyable. I actually learned about myself anyway that I can assimilate the information. I'm not an idiot. I'm just a slow learner. You know, if I've given enough time, I, I can I can master things. So on the one hand, it was very liberating to realize this about myself because I, I hadn't really realized it before. I don't think I'd realized even what kind of student I was or what kind of studying style I had. It was liberating to realize it. But on the other hand, it was scary because I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like, how am I going to how am I going to survive the next three years of this? I'm a slow learner. I am what I am. They accepted me into med school. Great. Good for them. Good for me. But like, wh what, what does it mean for the rest of, am I going to be miserable for the rest of the three years? Is it worth it? Should I explore other options? Anyway, so it brought up a lot of difficult questions for me. The, the other thing that I learned also was <laughs> that you're really never alone as you, as alone as you think you are. Because when I got to the retake, uh, there were like 15 other people there um, retaking other exams. I had no idea that, that, that they had failed an exam. Some of them, I, I even knew them a little bit. And, and all of them, I thought, these people are like really intelligent people who I have always thought and still think will succeed at medical school and become great doctors. Like for me, the fact they were retaking an exam didn't really mean much. Like it brought me satisfaction and reassurance at the same time to see that not only that other people had failed, but that like super smart people had failed also. <laughs> so it made me think, you know, maybe this failure isn't the be all and end all. I mentioned the word reassuring. It was reassuring to see that even the people that I thought as very successful were also failing at the same time. It, it is kind of a shame that we don't always see failures that way. There are so many small failures and small successes between absolute failure and absolute success. None of them really define necessarily what you're able to do and, and, and what you're not able to do. Yeah, it was kind of like a bittersweet moment, but, uh, but I, did learn, I did learn a lot from, from that failure and all, all of the learning came from me. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really refreshing, actually, to hear someone speak so honestly about a failure and all the questions that it brought up. In some ways, you have to wonder if that failure hadn't happened, whether all of those questions would have been answered during your first year, which I really think your first year of medicine is a time when you discover a lot about yourself because of the demanding nature of the, of the program, which you mentioned a couple of times. And you also mentioned you, you kind of went through this process a little bit alone. And I think that's an important thing to talk about too. We kind of were interested in, in learning a bit more about the, the strategies that you've learned through the years of this demanding program, of this demanding profession uh, to stay well. And when I say well, I mean in, in all aspects, psychologically well, physically well, socially well. So what are some of the things that, that you do for yourself to look after yourself? Good question. <laughs> I don't have the key to unlock uh, the door to the mysteries of, you know, perfect wellness. It continues to be a challenge, but also like a work in progress. And I'm much better at it now than I was when I was a medical student. So in retrospect, I think I 
do have some maybe small pieces of advice to offer. Maybe we can address physical wellness a little bit because I think it really goes hand in hand with mental health and, and psychological wellness. But there have been several times throughout medical school residency and the first few years of my practice where I had I went to the gym very regularly. And, you know, there's always like weeks and months in between where I don't go. <laughs> Something happened. There's an exam, there's a family, pregnancy, whatever, lots of things. I never really felt as good physically and mentally as when I went to the gym regularly. Even for me now, that would be one of the things I would continue to want to work on is getting regular exercise. And, you know, the advice I give to my patients is if you're not doing any right now, don't like jump and start training for the marathon. I think baby steps is probably better to start with and better than nothing. So if it means that you just need to get out and walk around the block a few times while you're dealing with something stressful, then that's what it means. For example, in medical school, I really didn't feel like I had time to do anything. I was such an anxious studier, so stressed out. You know, I would often say, no, no, I don't, I don't have time. I have to sit here and study. But of course, it was never really that productive because I just didn't feel physically that well because I was sitting, you know, hunched over a chair with poor lighting. I remember once I was speaking to my mother and she said, like every 60 to 90 minutes, put your pen and pencil down leave the house, get some fresh air and just walk around the block. Even if it takes you five minutes, that's fine. Walk around the block. And I did start to do that. I kind of thought, man, oh, this isn't going to work. And I was being a bit negative, but it really did make a huge difference in how well I felt during my studying. And as you go on into residency too, you'll end up studying for larger exams and you spend longer hours doing it. I was really very disciplined about every 60 to 90 minutes. I would just put everything down, even if I was in the middle of a thought and I would get out and go walk around the block. And if I thought I had a bit of extra time, then I'd make the walk a bit longer, 15, 20 minutes. So basically, you know, the mental clarity that you will gain by going outside, even if you go on longer walks, will help you be more productive in your studying when you return to it. And I know it sounds like a small lesson, but I always repeat it to my med students and residents because I found it really, really helped me. Just be happier so that you don't have to be upset and anxious while you're studying. <laughs> And then there's also the social aspect too of your psychological wellness, you know, which is to, you got to reach out and talk to people. And I would say, don't shy away from going out. So one thing that I did in medical school was, again, because I was an anxious studier and I know not everyone is like that, but it was very difficult for me, like on weekends, for example, or on Friday, Saturday night to go out. If I was invited to go out somewhere, I would say like, oh gosh, no, I'm too anxious. I'm not going to enjoy myself. I'm just going to stay home and I'll try to study a little bit. And, you know, I rarely did <laughs> mostly stay home and maybe like open the book and then just stress out a bit and end up doing other things like watching Netflix. And then I would beat myself up about it the next day and be like, oh, I didn't study. I didn't do anything. And so now, now when I look back, I think, you know, I did sort of miss out on being more social with friends, like with people that I liked and I enjoyed being around. And if I could go back and do it again, well, hopefully I wouldn't have to do it again. But if I had to go back and do it again, I would say, I would say, you know, yeah, put, put down the pen and pencil and just go. It's not going to make a difference in your studying. So don't punish yourself by having to stay home 
and study all that time. Like at some point your brain just cannot compute anymore. You need to relax, you need to get out. So you're still a person, you're still a human and you need to, you need to decompress. So I would say, yeah, I'd never feel guilty about doing that. And probably the time when you think you shouldn't be doing it is exactly the time that you should. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And, you know, at this point, we wanted to ask you a little bit about the role of mindfulness in medicine. As you know, the medical context, especially in family medicine, can be filled with many moments of a nuance that a physician has to perceive and be mindful, especially when you encounter a patient. So we're wondering, how do you ensure that, you know, you're not too distracted in thoughts about the past or future in order to have mindfulness uh, when you're conducting your work as a physician? It kind of sounds like you're asking about being mindful of the patient, but also maybe of yourself too, because especially in family medicine, for me, there's two people in the room, you know, or sometimes more. So (laughs) there's all of your baggage that you bring into your interactions and then the patient's baggage, which is, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to bring in their baggage. So that's okay. But on the one hand, you kind of have to keep your own personal life out of things. So if you have a bad day, you have to learn how to compartmentalize that part of yourself, put it in a separate compartment so that when you're dealing with the patient, you can focus on them. Obviously it might happen that you cannot compartmentalize something big happens and then you might just have to cancel and you have to know when you're fit to take care of someone and when you're not. It doesn't happen very often that you're not fit to take care of someone, but life happens, things happen. And on the other hand, you have all of the baggage that your patient takes in to see you. And we have a very complex healthcare system, not only in Quebec, everywhere, but access to to the family physician or access to any physician actually um, is, is difficult. You know, people wait months before seeing their doctors and it's not always for small things. Like sometimes it's for very serious issues. So whatever amount of time your patient has waited to see you, that's how much stuff they're bringing in to you. You're in the position where you kind of have to sift through their issues. All, all of their issues are going to be important to them. Otherwise they wouldn't be talking about it. You know, sometimes people mention things as a kind of a way to deflect from the very important thing that will come at the very end of the visit when they're about to leave. But for the most part, you know, they're bringing up things that they want to discuss and you're going to hear probably a lot about agenda setting. If you do your family medicine rotations, setting the agenda with the patient, which to be very honest with you, I still kind of struggle with setting the agenda at the beginning because, you know, you want to please your patient as well. You want them to be happy and satisfied with their interaction. And sometimes, sometimes you have to be politely dismissive in a way of, of something very minor so that you can deal with the more serious issues. And that's because you don't have an unlimited amount of time to spend with your patients. Time, time is of the essence. It's always about time and efficiency. You know, even the way you get paid is about time. Okay. Not necessarily a good thing, but that's is the way it is. So one thing I find that helps me be mindful in the sense that I'm being aware of my own emotions about things, but also be mindful to the patient's emotions is that I, I tell them what kind of time I have for them because I find we're not honest enough about it. So so I tell them, I say, I say, listen, I, I don't have unlimited time to discuss everything with you. I have other patients to see. I find in general patients, they appreciate when I tell them, this is what I have to spend with you today. And you know, find I spend an appropriate amount of time with them. So it gives us a chance to be mindful of one another if I share that with them. And something that sometimes interferes with being mindful of everything you have to do, you know, you have to discuss all your well care with your patient that you might not see for another year and they're 55 years old. You know, if 
if I'm running late, I have to take that time with them anyway. And then I might be running late for the next patient and the next patient and the next patient. So when people tell me, well, you were running late today, <laughs> which they do, <laughs> they'll say, I'm, I'm upset because you're running late. I'll say, you know, I apologize. I say, I'm very sorry, but you know, I had to spend this time with this person and it might be your turn one day and I might have to spend that time with you, but I will take the time to do it. All of the mindfulness that, that myself and my patients practice, I think is because, because of having an honest relationship. And that's the kind of thing you get to build up with time, right? It doesn't just come right away. And that's one of the nice things of family medicine is that you do get to build relationships with people as time goes by. So I think that probably helps be mindful. Absolutely. I thought that was perfect. And I really appreciate how you mentioned this as well, that the mindfulness isn't just in the clinical context. It's also about our personal lives and the baggage that we might bring into a clinical context. So, I mean, based on that, do you have any advice for us about how we as future physicians and healthcare workers can develop mindfulness now in our personal lives outside medicine? And like by extension, for example, do you have any advice for mindfully balancing this work life with home and family life? Another big question, <laughs> big work in progress. <laughs> I guess it's very connect work and personal life. We always talk about having the two be completely separate, but it's so hard because the truth is work life, especially as a physician, but many, many people's work lives is very, very stressful. And it's, it's almost automatic to bring it home. I think I would say if, if mindfulness is the state of being aware, let's say the state of being aware of one's emotions, but also not being harsh with yourself, not judging those emotions and not over-interpreting them, then ultimately mindfulness is going to be about being kind to yourself. You know, I will say, try not to bring home, work home with you. Okay. And Specifically as a doctor, this is advice that I wish I had followed when I first got into practice, but I didn't, and many people don't, is to not take on too much. Like you're just out of residency. And, you know, even when you transition from medical school to residency, you're going to be asked to do all kinds of things, you know, oh, can you do a presentation on this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Academics, that's fine. Those are your obligations, but anything extra eventually can take its toll, but you have to know yourself and know your limits. If you're not the kind of person that can handle all of that extra work and all of that pressure, just learn how to say no, <laughs> learn how to say no. That's a very important lesson. And when you get out into practice, finally, no matter what your specialty is, there is going to be a lot of pressure for you to produce and be efficient and see. So number one, don't take on too much, like practice saying no. And the mantra that I like to use for myself, and I tell residents this a lot, is I say, listen, we all know what the problems of the healthcare system are. You are not going to fix those problems by yourself. You're not going to fix those problems. And it's not your job to fix those problems by yourself. It's not my job to take on 500 extra patients on top of my, however, how many thousands, you know, it's no one's job to take on an excessive amount an excessive number of patients to, to fix that problem. Number one, it won't work. And number two, you're not going to be able to keep up. It's going to set you up for failure. So learn how to say no and know your limits. And it's okay to start everything off slowly when you eventually start your practices. So a good example of that is when a lot of family doctors start out. And I guess this is important to you guys because probably a large number of you will be going into family medicine. But I think it can apply to other specialties as well, is when you get out there, there's a pressure to see many, 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 many patients. And there's also a personal pressure for you because you want to make money, right? You've done all this work, you've got your lines of credits and your this and that and your debt. So now's the time to start paying it back. 
So there's, there's a financial pressure as well. Um, most people will take, will take on so many patients in their first six months to a year when really you could take more time to do it. There's, there's no reason you have to do it within the first few months. To me, the colleagues of mine that have really taken their time and spent longer with patients at the beginning and, and waited before taking on the extra load are the people that did it the best because they sort of assessed their level of stress at each step. And they also became more prepared as time went on right? It's a, it's a whole learning process to exit medical school and exit residency. It's a steep learning curve. But the nice thing about when you start to work is that you have a little bit more control over things. So you have, you have to take that control in order to be able to be, be well mentally and not burn out. And if you can avoid that, you can have a healthy personal life, <laughs> you know, and that's what we're striving for. If you're the happiest you can be in your professional life, it's going to enable you to be happier in your personal life. In your, we talked a lot about work now. So in your personal life, I think number one, bridging, I have a lot of numbers eh, today. I'm like, number one, number two, in, in bridging that gap between professional life and personal life. Cause like I said, I, I don't think it's completely possible to just let go. You know, I think it's normal to think about your work at home and that's okay if it's done healthily. But I, I think it's important to have someone or several people that are in your field and that are safe people to talk to that you can debrief with and vent with and complain with. That's super important because as I mentioned, I think in one of my other responses, it can be a really solitary career, you know, and a kind of lonely environment sometimes. So you, you have to be able to debrief with with people that understand what you're going through. Cause it's not the same when you debrief with people like your family or partner, whoever, who maybe isn't in medicine. Most people will, will form friendships in medical school. And those, you know, you want to hold on to those people if you can, because they're going to be able to support you later when you start working. So that's very, very important. And they're also going to be your colleagues. Thank you so much for sharing all of those wonderful tips. And I appreciate the numbers for one. So <laughs> it's very good for me. We've spoken a little bit about personal life, work-life balance, all of that. And one of the things that we did want to chat to you about was you mentioned that you did music prior to, to starting medical school. So does that still play a role in your life? And is it still a hobby? And if so, how does that contribute to this kind of balance between taking on the world of medicine and all of its problems and, and also just looking after yourself and enjoying yourself as well? I'm, I'm not, I don't really do any music right now, although I'm sort of in a place in my life. I'm on maternity leave right now, so I have other things to do. But I, I did sing in a choir throughout medical school, actually. And throughout my first year of residency, I also sang. I think it played an important role in the sense that, in medical school anyway, it did. In the sense that, you know, it was a fairly disciplined activity. So I, I kind of had to let go of other things that were happening and focus on you know, sight reading, singing, and, and doing right by my fellow choristers and things like that. So for some people, it might be as easy as going to the gym and just like unwinding by running on the treadmill for an hour or two or whatever. So I, I think just the activity, the, the fact that I was doing a different activity was, was helpful in unwinding. Was there something special about music itself? For me, it's very different than medicine. You get to appreciate it in a way in a way that's more natural, I would say. So there are many times where I enjoy medicine and I enjoy my work, 
but it, you know, there's always that sense of responsibility and, and seriousness and, and that's okay. That's, that's the path I've chosen for now. So that's fine. And I'm happy to do it, but there's something to be said, I think for being able to just relax and let something happen to you in a very positive way, kind of like going to the spa <laughs> where you don't have to exercise your mind in the same way. And there's less of that, the negative stress. You know, at, at one point when I, when I had to stop singing in the choir, it was becoming a bit of a negative stress because there was a lot of pressure for me to attend certain rehearsals that I just couldn't because I was on call or I had something to do the next day, like an exam or some kind of course. And so I, I wasn't able to make it. And they told me, well, if you can't really come to the rehearsals, you can't really sing in the concert. So you have to make a decision. So when, when it became a negative stress, I stopped it, which I think was the right thing to do. It'd be nice to pick it back up again, to be very honest with you. The, the, the balance of work life, family life, and social life or recreational life is, like I said, still a work in progress. I think I would prioritize physical activity for now, because that's what's going to make you feel the best, I think, at least for me. But yeah, the role of hobbies and personal interests. I mean, if you have something you like to do, then you should do it. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, not avoiding social activities because you're anxious about studying and things like that. Put everything down and go and do something just to get some fresh air and unwind. I think many med students have hobbies from before. I'm always impressed actually in med school by like the things that people did, you know, <laughs> like, um, and the skills that they had that they managed to develop before med school. I guess some people were also impressed with the fact that I did music. So I don't think there's any lack of interesting things that people do, but the, the question is finding the time to do it. So, you know, you do have to carve out the time. You do have to make the time. You know, at some point I had a friend who she wanted to see her, her therapist. She had a psychologist that she saw. And at some point she told me, it's like, I don't have time to see them anymore. Like I, how can I go to the gym and do med school and do this and that? And then on top of it, go to see them. I, there's no time to do all of the things. And I said, just forget about all the other stuff. Go see your psychologist. Like you have to make time for that. So drop your hobby, drop this. Don't go to the gym. It doesn't matter. Go do the thing that's going to make you feel the best. Thank you so much. As we've approached the end of our time together, I want to thank you immensely for your time and for sharing your experiences with us. It's really therapeutic to just talk about some of these things that go on during training and during this profession that we don't often talk about. So thank you so, 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 so much uh, for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. It's been so much fun. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.